we're kicking off this series, connecting backward with the story of Jesus, and uh, that's on purpose. This uh, ministry year, back if you'll remember back in September, we uh, kicked off a new ministry year with a theme that's part of our portrait of a connected life. So this idea of a connected life is, is really rooted in the idea that the Christian life is a connected life. It's a life that was once separated in the worst possible ways, but a life that is being connected and is connected in the most important ways. So the Christian life is a connected life. And then we have a portrait that reminds us of these ways that God has connected us and is connecting us as we walk with him. So here it is, uh, upward, backward, withward, inward, and outward. We connect upward with God. That's the most important. Uh, we connect backward with our story. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We connect withward with the body. We live in authentic community with each other. We connect inward with our gifting, this unique design that God has given every one of us so that we can have redemptive influence in our world. And then we connect outward with the mission. That's what we talked about all last year. That was our focus uh, we invest our lives, even as Jeff was talking about generosity, we invest our lives in the redemptive mission of God in our world. So we want to be cultivating all of these connections, but this year we're focused in on connecting backward with our story. Now, when I say story, uh, most of us, understandably, we're going to be thinking about our own personal experience, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the first part of when you hear us say story, that's the first thing that we're talking about is our personal journey of faith. If I tell you my story and I'm a believer, well, I can't tell you my story without telling you about the activity of God in my life. So that's very important, but story is so much bigger than that. Story isn't only my own personal journey, but it's also the collective new covenant story of the church. So 2,000 years ago, this thing called the church was inaugurated with the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's in the book of Acts. And from that point on, church history began all by the design of God. And so when we say we connect backward with our story, we're connecting backward with the history of the church of which we're a part today. That story is still continuing. We're right in the midst of it. And then lastly, when we connect backward with our story, we're connecting with the all-encompassing redemptive story of history. So with the beginning of creation, God began something. We'll call it a story. And that story has been unfolding as long as the universe has been in existence. And so when we talk about connecting backward, we want to find ourselves in that larger story because it isn't about us. It's not about Fellowship Bible Church. It's not about the United States of America. It's not about living in 2019. It's about God and his redemptive activity from the very first second that he spoke uh, the world into existence. So that's the big picture. We're focusing in this morning on 
this idea of backward with our story. And we use a resource that you may or may not be familiar with called Life Story. It's really just, uh, it's a resource that will guide you through reflecting specifically on your own journey of faith. Um, if you're a part of, this is like a little advertisement on the side, Right Now Media, which we all have access to as a part of this church, you have free access to Right Now Media. It's unbelievable. But on there, you can go to our custom channel and you can find Backward With Our Story and you can find two videos that will take you through instructions about how to process and ultimately share your life story with someone else. We've been doing it for 19 years and we want to continue sharing our story. It's rooted in two key passages. I'm just going to mention them. Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are God's workmanship. It's this story that God's writing and we are in the midst of that. And the, the more aware we are of that story, the more that we can talk about it with others. Philippians 1.6 says, uh, Paul said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he who began writing that story, that redemptive story in you, he's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So here's how I like to think about story. First of all, my story is God's gift to me. When I think about the redemptive activity of God in my life, that is a sweet gift. It is also, however, one of the greatest gifts I could ever give anybody else. Because as I'm talking about my story, I'm actually talking about the gospel, about the need for a savior and God's provision of a savior. So your story is God's gift to you and it's also your gift to give away to the people that come into your life. Now, this is where it's gonna get interesting. We're gonna use some sanctified imagination this morning. We're going to ask the question over the next four weeks, including today, what if Jesus were to tell you his life story? What would he say? Now, some of you may go, well, the Bible, of course, and you'd be right, that's the right answer, but, but I, I want you to imagine you're sitting around with Jesus, sitting around the campfire, and Jesus kind of lets you know, guys, I'm gonna share with you my life story. What would, he, what would he do? What would he say? How would he frame that? What would be the elements of that story? Well, there is this great moment in Luke 24 where I think we see kind of what that would have looked like. Now we're gonna get there probably in 2024. <laughs> so you'll probably forget everything I said this morning. It'll be all new again. But um, in Luke 24, there is this great little segment. There's these two guys and they're walking from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. And this is right after, three days after in spe specifically, after Christ was crucified. So three days later, there was supposed to be a, come on, not a complicated question there, resurrection, right, yeah. But they haven't seen the Christ. So they're walking down the road and they're probably talking about this and they're probably a little bit troubled. They're thinking, you know, it wasn't, I didn't like seeing Jesus get crucified because I never saw that coming. And then we're on the third day, where is he? I guess let's just go back to Emmaus. Let's just get back to life as it was. I, maybe another guy will come along. 
that could be our savior. They're walking along and this other fellow walks up and they don't recognize him. It's actually Jesus in his risen state. And he starts asking them, hey guys, what are y'all talking about? And they're like, dude, where have you been? We're coming from Jerusalem and there was this guy, Jesus, and he was crucified. And we were told that he was going to rise again, but we haven't seen him. And there is this phrase. I want you to catch this phrase, especially in light of our Advent theme this morning of hope. Here's what they said to Jesus. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they must have concluded that their hope was misplaced. You see what I'm saying? It's like hope without faith is kind of nothing at all. It's wishful thinking, as Kevin said earlier. So they're just going home. And Jesus comes along, and when they say that, he jumps into action with his story. Listen to what he says here. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's kind of saying, why are you losing your hope? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think he told those guys his life story. But he didn't just begin with the day he was born. He went all the way back, starting with Moses. And he connects the dots through all of the Old Testament. And my assumption is what he's thinking is, if you'll connect the dots with me as I tell you my story, as the Redeemer, then you're going to have faith infusing your hope. And that will move you into action. You're not going to go back to Emmaus. You're going to go into all the world and make disciples. You're going to give your life away. You're going to be a part of God's redemptive mission. Because now your hope is grounded in faith. So here's what we're going to do. For Advent, we've selected four key passages from the Old Testament that we think Jesus could have potentially mentioned as he was talking to these two guys on the road to Emmaus. The first is Genesis 3. We're going to hit that today. Next week, we'll go to Daniel 7. Then we'll hit Psalm 22. And then we'll finish with 2 Samuel 7. And each of these segments highlights a part of the story about Jesus prior to his arrival. These were the things that... Old Testament Jews had circulating in their minds as they anticipated a savior, a redeemer. So let's start with Moses. That's where Jesus, it looks like he began. And if you began with Moses, what he's referring to is the first five books of the Bible, also called the Pentateuch or the Torah. And keep in mind that those were probably written about 1400-ish B.C., prior to Jesus ever taking a breath on earth. So he goes back to what would have been very familiar territory for these guys, 
he starts at the beginning of the beginning. He goes to chapter 1, 2, and 3. And in chapters uh, 1 and 2, he basically gives them uh, an explanation for how everything came into existence. And then with chapter 3, he starts to lay out why things are the way they are today. Kind of the brokenness that all of us are aware of and experience. Now in Genesis 1 and 2, they're really less about how God created everything, although that's sort of in there most of the time. He's just speaking and it comes into existence. The most important thing about Genesis 1 and 2 is it establishes that God created everything. So it establishes him as creator. And it begins to highlight three things. First of all, that God existed prior to and outside of everything that he made. So what that means is everything else that's ever going to be in the story is created by God. That's important. That puts him in a different category. Secondly, God's intent was for men and women bearing his image to live in relationship with him. That was the beginning point. That was the first intent. And we're going to find that that gets horribly derailed. Third, God gave people genuine responsibility while also ultimately directing the course of human history. So nothing that humanity could do could ultimately thwart God's plan, all that he had planned. That brings us to Genesis 3. So we have man and woman in the garden. They are the crown of God's creation, made in the image or likeness of God. They display something about what God is like. There's abundant provision. They literally have anything and everything they will ever need in abundance. There's a creative mandate. They're told to be fruitful and multiply and rule over God's creation. Kind of interesting that creation needed ruling. We'll get to that in a minute. And then lastly, there's a boundary given to them. There's this one tree and they are not to eat from that tree lest they die. Now they have no idea what death is, but it's something. And it's something that will become a reality if they disobey God and do what they please. Into that setting enters a serpent. It's an animal described in Genesis 3 as more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This serpent is able to speak, which may or may not have been an ability that the serpent actually had all by itself, but nevertheless, it begins speaking, and it's questioning the woman about life in the garden. Like, what's going on here? Who's in charge? What are you guys doing? What do you all want? What do you all need? He begins to reveal himself as the adversary of God. And that word adversary is where we also get the word Satan. We actually talked about that a few weeks ago. Remember Satan, the Hebrew word? That means adversary. And I'm trying to give you this picture of the big story. So we're at the very beginning of the story. There is this creature, a serpent, who is questioning Eve about the design of everything. 
If we go to the end of the story that we've been given in Revelation, we find out the identity of that serpent. Revelation 12, 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. I think it's reasonable to think he may be why the earth needed to be ruled. And that also makes me think that they would have been able to rule had they trusted in their creator and not themselves. So, four things that Satan did. He begins with this Big question, did God actually say, planting a seed of doubt? And and he does this throughout his interaction with Eve. He raises doubts about the reliability and the intent of God's word. By the way, these are some great applications for us as we think about our own self-examination and what intents the enemy might have for us. So he raises doubts about the reliability and intent of God's word. He subtly maligns the character of God. He doesn't do it bluntly and outrightly. It's very subtle. He dismisses the consequences of disobedience. Remember, surely you won't die. You ever heard that before? And then lastly, he suggests that sin will truly satisfy. Isn't that the allure? of doing what we want to do instead of what God wants us to do. So the first couple is deceived. They disobey. They defy the clear command of God. And as a result, sin and death enters into this world. And that original design where they are innocent and things function as God first intended, that all gets blown to smithereens. And now there literally is another ruler over the earth under the authority of God, but certainly Satan is now ruling over Adam and Eve instead of them ruling over him. At this point, after the fall, God reenters the picture. This is verse eight of chapter three. He confronts the man, the woman, and the serpent. And it's funny, for some reason, I just, I just never thought the serpent was kind of in the circle there, right? I just always thought God's talking to Adam and Eve. But he's going to directly address the serpent. And I'm assuming from the way the story is told that Adam and Eve are right there hearing everything. It's all happening right there together. So God first calls for Adam and Eve. He asks them a few questions And then he turns his attention to the serpent. Look in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you have deceived this first couple. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Secondly, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
So let's just work through these two passages, and I'll just make the observation at the beginning. This is a curse. This is a consequence. This is God's judgment on the serpent. But what we're going to find in this judgment, in this curse, is a beautiful, beautiful nugget of hope that actually points to the story of Jesus. So let's work through this real quickly. First of all, uh, in verse 14, God curses the serpent uh, more than any of the other animals. He's told he's going to go on his belly. There's lots of speculation about, did the serpent have legs before that or not or whatever? I, I think probably the better way to think about this is there was a serpent. Satan basically inhabited the serpent. And so the serpent becomes symbolic. And so he slithers on the ground. He didn't start. It's like that's going to be the picture of evil going forward. Sort of like, remember, the rainbow was the picture of hope after the flood. Same kind of idea here. So cursed more than the other animals on your belly, eating dust. It's basically a sentence of humiliation. Now, why is that important? Well, we get the idea from the rest of Scripture that Satan was created as the highest being prior to Adam and Eve. So like he's above it, he's the prince of demons. He's number one of all created beings prior to Adam and Eve. Now, he is forever going to be identified with the lowest of lowest animals crawling on his belly and eating the dust of the earth. Incredible humiliation for this being that was full of pride. So that's the first part of his judgment. Then secondly, in verse 15, it says, the, certain, uh, the serpent was assured he would encounter enmity. Um, other words for that are hostility, hatred, antagonism, conflict like this there's now going to be this incredible war between the serpent and humanity specifically God said that there would be enmity between the woman and the serpent and in that sense those two represent two general categories one of a physical being and one of a spiritual being and God is saying from now on there will always be conflict between these two categories of beings. But secondly, there will be enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. Now, for the woman, that makes sense, right? You have babies, that's your seed or your offspring. And so God is saying that lineage will always be in conflict with the seed of the serpent. Now, Satan isn't having babies. He is called a father. And there are those who are called children of their father, the devil. And so there is this category, even within the physical beings, some are associated with the seed of the woman, which is the seed of righteousness, which we're also going to see is the seed of the Savior. And then there's another seed, those who are still separated, estranged from God and in conflict with him. Lastly, and this is the best news of all, there's going to be violence between the serpent and an eventual particular seed of the woman. So the 
the first reference to the woman's seed and the serpent's seed is more of a general description of offspring, like all of the lineage that will come after. But notice, when we get down to that second part, it says, he and his. He shall bruise your head, speaking of the woman's seed, and you, serpent, you will bruise his heel. So what's going on there? That probably would have been hard to understand when we were back right in the middle of all that stuff unfolding. But now, way down the road, looking backward, knowing all that we know from the scriptures, it makes perfect sense that the serpent would bruise, crush, strike the heel of the Redeemer, but he would ultimately bruise his head. One would be maybe a crippling injury, you could call it, the other will be fatal. That's the beginning of the story. It, it truly looks like there's no hope. And yet God in the middle of this curse inserts hope. Now, how does this relate to Jesus' story? I wanna give you a few passages from the New Testament. This is how the first Christians, the early church, our predecessors, this is how they understood this history. Galatians 4.4, 4, which we actually read earlier, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. That's a direct reference to Genesis 3.15 because it would be the seed of the woman. He was born under the law. Philippians 2.8 and 9, and being found in human form, he that is Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him in the name, uh, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So his death wasn't final. It wasn't complete. It was more like being bruised on the heel, something which he could overcome. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death, he might destroy, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So this seed predicted 1,400 years earlier, and then of course history was uh, unfolding long before Moses wrote these words down, all of that was leading toward this moment where Jesus would overcome the devil. Finally, Colossians 2.15, he, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, completing the humiliation by triumphing over them in him. This is referred to, this passage, this little glimmer of hope is called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the history of redemption that began with a promise of a seed, a redeemer. And uh, that, that's really why the genealogies, I know sometimes you're reading through your Bible like you do the read through my Bible in a year plan and you get to the genealogies, the lists of names, and it's just like, good gosh, man, I just got to keep reading all these names. This is why those names are so important. God in his kindness showed us how his promise 
made in the curse of the serpent actually was fulfilled in the person of Christ. See, those guys are walking down the road. Remember, let's go back to Emmaus. They're walking down the road and they'd lost hope because their hope wasn't really grounded in the faith that was informed by the scriptures. They sort of forgot the story. That's what Jesus was doing. He's like, guys, the story. (laughs) You forgot the story. It began in the beginning. The story began to unfold and it happened exactly as God intended. That ought to give you hope. I'll finish with this. Hope that is infused with faith activates gospel proclamation. And I would compare that to just mere mental assent. And I think we can be very guilty of that. We're we're all nodders, right? We hear stuff and it sounds true. We sort of nod, but it doesn't really make any difference. Like we don't live differently. It's like the guys walking back to Emmaus. They were in Jerusalem. They saw the Christ crucified and he said he was coming back in three days. So why aren't they waiting? Why aren't they in Jerusalem sitting there waiting, confident that we're going to see Christ? It took them walking back home to Emmaus, visited by the risen Christ, And they're listening to him tell the story. And then they break bread with him. And it says their eyes were opened and he allowed them to see him for who he really was. And they came to life. It actually says they returned to Jerusalem. And they got back with the crowd of disciples that were waiting. And it says they began to declare the Lord has risen Indeed, hope that is infused with faith activates gospel proclamation. Can you see how doing a cookie exchange for sentimental reasons just won't ever get you there? But if you understand the promise that God made and the promise that God kept then what you see around you is indeed a a harvest, a beautiful harvest of people who don't know the good news yet. And as they hear your story and the story of Christ and our future hope, it will change their life and they'll become full of hope. So let me give you a moment to think about the significance of this promise for you. Obviously, um, Christ has come. So we're not waiting in the same sense that those earliest Christ followers were. But we are waiting for a day when he'll return again, his second coming. And I I think we could be just as guilty of living our lives sort of like on the road back to Emmaus, like those two guys. We could live our lives in this waiting time just like they were. But what if, what if the promise that Christ made to his people, what if that were all that he promised it would be? What difference would that make in your life? Especially as we enter into this season of Advent 
the season of expectation, the season of Christmas. So take a moment and ask the Lord to highlight something about that that you can leave with today and apply to your life.